0: Continues to work amongst us. Um, anyway, today we are in Isaiah 53 and we are talking about the suffering king today. And so before I say anything else, let's just pray very quickly. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is a lamp to our feet. And Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, as we just look at this passage, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and meet with us. We thank you, Jesus, for the work of the cross And Lord, as we focus this morning on the crucifixion, Lord, we ask you that you might come and just illuminate this again to us today. Amen. Amen. So normally when I start talking, I start with like a joke or a story just to kind of lighten the mood and get you alongside me and kind of help us to ease in gradually to the morning. Um, But the crucifixion is such a serious topic. It's so crucial that I didn't feel it warranted a light-hearted introduction. So you're going to have to excuse me, so I'm literally just going to launch straight into it this morning. The word crucial is a really interesting one, because crucial comes from the Latin for crux, which is cross. That's where we get the word crucial from. It comes from the cross. You see, the crucial aspect of our faith is the cross. And it's not only crucial. In fact, the cross is the sun in which... The rest of our beliefs orbit around. Without the cross, everything else becomes completely meaningless. Martin Luther uh, coined this phrase, which is crux probat omnia, which in Latin, it means in English, it means the cross is the test of everything. Everything needs to be viewed through the lens of the cross. Without the cross, nothing stands and everything falls down. And it's the lens through which we are to view our world as Christians. Church of England writer and speaker Simon Ponsonby says that the cross is neither incidental or accidental. It's neither incidental or accidental. It's pivotal. The cross is pivotal. It's the thing on which everything else pivots. And Christmas, with all its hope and its joy and its excitement of celebrating a saviour coming into the world only really finds its meaning in the act of the saviour doing the saving we can't celebrate christmas without looking at the cross you see without the cross you and i find ourselves liable before god for every wrong action every thought every motive everything we've ever said or done and did we are liable before god without the cross the cross therefore for you and i is essential. And when you and I start to see the cross as pivotal, as essential, as foundational, we also begin to start to realise something else, that the cross was planned. The cross was planned. The Gospels consistently show us that throughout Jesus' ministry, he knew his fate. Sometimes it's just through um, short kind of things that he says or things that he does. As he goes about his earthly ministry, Jesus knows the fate in which he is going to. And Holman Hunt painted a, a picture of Jesus the carpenter titled The Shadow of Death. Now, the style of painting aside, which I really don't like, it's called pre-Raphaelite art. And um, he was part of a a group of artists called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. um, And I don't like it that much. But it's significant because Hunt's work is full of symbolism. And in this piece of work, it points to the idea that Jesus' life was leading to a single moment. On the left, we see Mary, his mother, opening a box. And if you look carefully, inside the box are the gifts from the Magi, the myrrh and the frankincense, which were, frankincense, which were often used as uh, embalming fragrances for dead bodies. And Jesus is stretching from his work as a carpenter. I was doing some work on our stairs yesterday, and now as a 40-year-old, my back was aching, and I stretched at one point during it. I imagine that Jesus' back ached constantly, bent over, sores, and all different things like that. And so here he is in this painting stretching. And as he stretches, the shadow of his body cast as, as cross on the wall behind him and hunters clearly and carefully placed hammers and nails and of course a wooden beam to foreshadow Jesus's future everything in Jesus' life is leading to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection it's no wonder then to me some people say why don't we hear Jesus' backstory in the gospels We don't hear Jesus' backstory, his life as a carpenter, because obviously this isn't actually a picture from Scripture. This is Holman Hunt imagining something. We don't see the backstory because the events of the crucifixion and resurrection are so important that the gospel writers choose to focus on that. And we also find that when we read the Old Testament, as we've been doing over the last few weeks and looking at Isaiah, we also find that the Old Testament is leading to those moments. Turning to Isaiah, we find perhaps the greatest predictions of Jesus's fate coming from the final servant song of Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. And so we're just going to look at from verse uh, 4 of 53 this morning, um, and then I want to draw some things out of it. And it starts like this. Surely he took up our pain, this is from the NIV by the way today, and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. so going forward from this passage for a moment, John's gospel, and the gospel writers quote this passage seven times, or it gets quoted in the New Testament seven times. And John, in John's gospel, chapter 12, he says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So this isn't like some random prophecy that Isaiah writes down. What John says is that when Isaiah is writing this, he doesn't just see somebody, he actually sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. And what does he do? What is he pointing to? In fact, I think this is probably the greatest theological explanation in in the Old Testament of what the cross achieves. And what we find here is the following things. First of all, he says that Jesus comes knowing that he's going to suffer. Secondly, he comes to die as a substitute for humanity's wrongdoing, verse 6. He experiences the punishment of God for the evil acts that we have committed, verse 5. His death... Places us in right standing with God. Verse eleven, his death is not the end, and he will be raised to new life. Verse eleven, you can see that there in the, in, in the text. And lastly, and I think very importantly, the son, the servant, is rewarded with greatness for what he has done. So seven hundred years. I just want to just because I've said this, I said this last time I spoke as well. But just get, I can't get my head around this. Seven hundred years, seven hundred years ago. Think about the UK and think about what it was like 700 years ago. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah wrote this prophecy down, pointing to what Jesus was going to do. And it was waiting to be fulfilled. But, but you could ask this question, and I know that when we've done Alpha, people often ask this particular question when we look at the role of Jesus and what he does. Why does Jesus need to die? Like, why does he need to die? It. Some people say it makes no sense. Surely if God is a God of forgiveness, can't he just forgive? Like, why the need for Jesus at all? If God is love, can't God just forgive? When God makes humanity, he gives us the right to choose to follow him or not. I know I talk about Adam and Eve a lot, but you know what? So much of our theology boils down to the first few chapters of Genesis. You see, God gives them free will, the ability to make their own decisions. We have that same free will. And he allowed them to choose whether or not they followed him. And when they chose not to follow him, they created a separation between themselves and God. You see, in the Old Testament, um, written in Hebrew, the word holy is is, is from the Hebrew kadosh. And kadosh means to be separate, to be set apart. And God is separate. He's set apart. He's holy. He's holy. And when God created Adam and Eve, they were set apart with God. So they were set apart with God. But in their sin, they became set apart from God. And God is just. I spoke about this last time I preached. And to have justice, wrongdoing, requires a punishment, not just forgiveness. You can't get justice with just forgiveness alone. You also need a punishment for the wrongdoing. You and I... Hate the idea of those who have committed crimes going unpunished or or being let off lightly. You know, if we hate that, if we hate injustice, think about how God, the just God, thinks about it. He hates injustice. And so in order to unite what had been separated, forgiveness isn't enough. There needs to be justice. And for justice, there needed to be punishment. And at the cross, we find a, a strange sort of paradox occurs because... God takes his own punishment, his own anger, his own justice against our wrongdoing on himself at the cross. Fleming Rutledge says this, that it is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. In the crucifixion, we see the full nature of God revealed. Because the crucifixion isn't just about the son dying on the cross. In fact, at the crucifixion, the whole trinity is involved. At the crucifixion, the Father is involved. You see, it says, doesn't it, in John 3, 16, that the the Father so loves the world that he gives his one and only Son. And as Christ dies, God the Father suffers. If you have ever heard of a theologian called Jürgen Moltmann, this was one of his big things. He spoke about that, 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 that God suffers as the Son is crucified. He suffers the separation from the Son. God the Father suffers the agony as a parent, can you imagine watching your son go through that? He watches the, suffers the agony of knowing our sin and rebellion is being placed onto Christ, the Son. The Son, we find in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he willingly goes to the cross. He doesn't open his mouth. In Isaiah's prophecy, we see him purposefully not doing that. You know, Jesus could have summoned all the angels of heaven to stop him going to the cross. But he chose in total obedience to the Father's will separation from the Father, and the bearing of our punishment. He chose to take the wrath of God. It wasn't met out to him in a way that seems unjust. Well, it was unjust, but Christ chose it. And lastly, the Spirit. The Spirit is involved in the cross. You know, the Spirit has empowered Jesus for his ministry. And as Jesus dies on the cross, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in that process. But also, he is intimately involved as Jesus is risen to new life. He's intimately involved in empowering the new group of disciples in Acts 2. You see, that the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection aren't all about Jesus. They are about God the Trinity. God the Trinity stepping in for us. God the Trinity stepping in to show us, to demonstrate that he was determined to love us, fight for us, bear our sin and suffer for us. It's only when we consider that that we can fully get our heads around a statement like God is love. God is love. Because it's in some sort of soppy, sentimental form of love, the love that we so often hear about in our culture, and that awful phrase, love is love, what on earth does that mean? But it's a self-giving love. It's a suffering love. The New Testament is quite clear to say that that is what love really is. That's what love really is. God is love. And in his love, he suffers for us. You know the word the word passion? It's where we call the passion of, of Jesus, which is his, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. The word passion, we so often say, oh, I'm so passionate about this, or I'm so passionate about that. The word passion means to suffer. It means to endure. God is passionate for us in the right sense of the word. The cross was pain-filled. We don't often talk about This aspect of the cross. But I think the picture that we find in Isaiah 53 is one of vivid pain. And I don't want to minimise that. Because I think it's just because I think it might be uncomfortable for you to hear. But I think you need to hear it. When Jesus went to the cross to bring about our redemption and triumph over evil. He went through incredible pain. The word excruciating finds its meaning at the cross. It means out of the cross. So next time you say, I'm in excruciating pain, think, is it the same level of pain that would be experienced by somebody suffering a crucifixion? Don't ever use that word lightly. The act of crucifixion was mastered over hundreds of years by the Roman Empire to exact the most amount of pain possible over the longest period of time possible for the victim of it. Jesus, before he had gone to the cross, had already suffered the most incredible pain already. He had had his back whipped with a cord that had been woven together with bone shards, stones and hooks. It was literally designed to rip your skin away from your bones. The nails driven into Jesus' hands weren't just roughly placed into his hands. They were carefully and expertly placed by people who knew how to do this. And they were placed along a on the sensory motor median nerve. This would have sent bolts of pain through Christ's body as he hung on the cross. And it prolonged death as long as possible. The cross was designed to prolong your death. So that many people who died on the cross died because they slowly suffocated as their lungs filled with the fluids from other internal organs. But this isn't the worst pain that Jesus suffered on the cross. The worst pain is Jesus suffering our iniquity and our sin. Still worse, it's suffering the very separation from Father God. I can't answer. I can't. I could come up with all the theological answers in the world about why does God allow suffering? I can't answer that question, but what I know... Because maybe you've been suffering recently. Maybe you continue to suffer. What I know is that we worship a God who fundamentally understands suffering more than you or I ever could do. Jesus knows suffering. He knows pain. If you live your life in pain, I know many of us in our church community, we suffer from ongoing pain. Jesus knows your pain. He's felt pain. He understands what pain feels like. But you know, as Jesus is suffering this pain, he is doing something incredible. He's not only freeing you from sin and shame, but he is destroying the powers of darkness. You see, the cross is powerful. The cross is powerful. At the cross, it looks as if evil is triumphing over God. It looks like Satan is winning, doesn't it? But on the cross... Jesus is not only suffering for our sin, he is becoming victorious over evil. The victim of an unjust death is bringing about justice through his death. Satan's power, death itself, is being broken and the curse of Adam and Eve's rebellion is being destroyed. And the breaking of evil not only breaks the curse of death and sin, but it breaks the power of all spiritual powers. At the cross, Jesus breaks every curse. Death, sin, sickness, the demonic, every spiritual force now must bow the knee to Jesus because of the cross. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled them, the charge against our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them on the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus won victory over evil. The wars that we see happening in the world today, you know, you open your newsfeed in the morning and you go, oh, what's happened now? What's happened today? The wars that we see going on today, the injustices that we find continually in our society will all one day finally end Because Jesus went to the cross. When writing on the cross, every single New Testament writer makes the link between the cross and how it affects, therefore, our relationships with one another. I did some work on this this week just to look through that and prove that I was right in that statement. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that because of Jesus' blood, we have been reconciled to Christ. And therefore, he says, I'm a minister, Paul says, of reconciliation. But he's also encouraging us to become ministers of reconciliation as well. Because of the cross, Paul says, because we've been reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another. He also says this in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? He says that the cross breaks down barriers that once stood between us. Adam and Eve's rebellion not only separated us from God, but it created divides between us as humans. In the cross, we are once again united as a new humanity. Paul's context, this was unity between Jew and Gentiles when he writes Ephesians. This is the unity between Jew and Gentile. But for us, it's something different because we don't have that problem here. For us as a church, community it's recognising that God is bringing together a people from every single walk of life. From both genders, from every ethnicity, from every age, every social background and every culture. What was separated because of sin has now been made one because of the cross. And so in a world of racism, of war, of sexism, of individualism, you and I are called together to be one new people through the power of the cross. At the cross, the walls between us get broken down. This is the power of the cross. Yet too often what we do as Christians is we start rebuilding the walls because it's more comfortable to stay within our walls than it is to step outside of them. And the diversity across even this room today is incredible. And we celebrate that. We celebrate the fact that as a church we continue to become more and more diverse in every single aspect. But we mustn't be ignorant to the challenges that brings us as well. And I suppose I want to remind you again, as I focus on this briefly, that we must treat one another with very special honour and consider our own words and actions towards one another. And like Jesus, we need to stand with those on the margins because the cross makes us one new man. I can't teach on the cross and not teach you this. And it takes time and it takes patience and it takes grace for one another because as we pursue being one new man, we will get things wrong and make mistakes. The Apostle John writes this, This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Because of the cross, we are called into a relationship of love for one another. And you know what? The great thing about what I'm saying right now is something that you can respond to in a few minutes' time when we finish the meeting. Because you can stay for for refreshments after church. And rather than going going and talking to somebody you know who looks like you, who's from the same background as you, or you've known for a long time, why not go and talk to somebody you don't know, who's not like you? Why not go and speak to somebody who's older than you or younger than you or a different gender from you or from a different part of the world than you're from and have a conversation with them? As we do that as a church community, we are celebrating the power of the cross. You see, the the cross radically changes how we relate to one another. But there is also something that I just want to land with this morning. The cross is incredibly personal to each one of us. In 1633, the famous Dutch painter, I've got two paintings in this morning. You can see I I, I like my art. Dutch painter Rembrandt painted the raising of Christ. In this piece, Jesus is being lifted onto the cross. However, on close inspection, we find something quite strange. Two figures behind Jesus are recognisable to anybody who knows Rembrandt's work. Even I knew who these were. These are self-portraits of Rembrandt himself. Why would Rembrandt paint himself into a painting of Jesus being raised onto the cross? Well, he's painting a picture for you and I. As the cross is raised, Rembrandt says he's helping Jesus be raised into place. But he's pointing to us as well and he's saying, look, it doesn't have to be him. It could be you or I painted into this picture. You see, the truth of the matter is, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in doing so, just like Rembrandt, our hands were on that cross, placing Jesus into the ground. We all lifted him there. Yet there's a second Rembrandt in this picture, if you look carefully, just behind. And he's looking out to us. And I think he's got a question on his face. I think the question is something like, what will you do with the cross? Will you ignore it? Or will you build your life on it some of us who have been Christians a long time we think that oh this is just, this is doctrine that oh everybody knows that well let's get on to something else let's let's talk about something that i've heard that message so many times before i don't need to hear it again i would argue that we never should ever move away from a gospel of the cross the cross is our foundation Paul says that there are only two things we can do with the crucifixion. We either see it as a foundation for our lives, something that we build on, a stone that we set everything else in place on, or it becomes a stone of inconvenience for us, something that we continue to trip over. My question to you this morning is that as we approach Christmas, what will you do with the cross? And for each of us, that's going to look different. Maybe you need to just confess some sin to Jesus this morning. Maybe you need to go to one another and confess sin this morning. Maybe you need to take on board my points about being, making sure that we keep demonstrating the power of the cross to one another. Maybe you just need to thank Jesus for the cross. But for each of us, our response to this is different. But as we do that this morning, we're going to take communion. And Jesus commands us, as we take communion, that we're called to remember what he has done and I'm just going to read this from uh, Corinthians um, as we do that but I just want to just uh, if you can get your communion cup ready that would be brilliant and we're going to take communion and then I'm going to pray for you as I was preparing this I felt Jesus tell me to take communion so I took communion (laughs) on my own this week but something else we've been doing Over the last few weeks is, as a family, we take communion once a week together. I just encourage you to think about that personally in your own life. What could that look like? Could you take communion with people when they come around for a meal? Paul says this, doesn't he? For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's just take the bread, shall we, and just thank Jesus for his body. I'll just pray as we do that. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us. Lord, we thank you that because of your body broken, we can know new life. Lord, we thank you for your body broken. Lord, we can't ever understand the amount of pain that you went through. Father, we can't understand... The, the, the torment of the separation that you experience being away from the son. But Lord God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that your body was broken for us. We thank you, Jesus. Paul goes on to say, in the same way he took the cup also after say, uh, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this drink, this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's just do that. Lord, we thank you for the power of your blood, the the, the blood that washes our sin clean the blood that takes away our iniquity, the blood that bears the penalty of our sin, the blood that bears the punishment, but also we thank you for the blood that defeats the powers of darkness. Lord, we thank you that we stand as people of the blood and the body of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we don't stand under condemnation whilst we put you there, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have freed us. Lord, I thank you that we are freed from sin. We are freed from shame. Lord, I thank you that because you have risen to new life, we have hope. We have a future. We have an inheritance. Lord, we celebrate and we thank you for the blood. Lord, we pray that you would make us people of the cross this week. Lord, we ask you that in all our comings and goings, Lord, that the crucifixion would be front and centre for us. Lord, that as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Lord, that we would have cross-shaped lives this week. And Lord Jesus, I pray that even now as we go and have tea and coffee together, Lord, that we might celebrate the power of the cross together. The power of the cross that has taken what is divided and made it united as one. And so, Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have won this victory for us.